My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. hip-hop artist. Ooh, this could get kind of ugly. But hey, let's just get it all out there, okay? Yes, I made a quote-unquote rap record during a time in my life that I like to think of as, well, as an identity crisis. My identity crisis. <laughs> Didn't know who I was, who I wanted to be, just thought I needed to be something else. And that cost me. Cost me some friendships, some dignity, some portion of my sanity, but ultimately it cost me perspective. Yeah, I, I operated under assumptions, delusions, really. The delusion that whatever I did would work because me. Yay, me. Who doesn't know who he is? I blame myself for the many errors I made during those days, but my identity crisis... I think I'm going to share a little of the blame out with the 90s. The decade was an identity crisis of its own. Once we get out of the 80s, the 90s are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. Look, it was a weird time. Pop culture was changing. People were looking at things differently, in particular where music was concerned. You see, everything had been nice and neat and orderly and in fully accepted little boxes. And then... This guy showed up. Well, what kind of music do you do? It's kind of like um, a cross between, uh, I would say, Duke Ellington and um, and Bad Brains. And Bad Brains. Perry Farrell. Perry may not be fully responsible for the way the 90s squished a lot of weird shit together, but he had a lot to do with it. Anyone remember Lollapalooza? Yeah. That was him. All styles of music under one roof. <laughs> the common thread being that everyone kind of digs it all and doesn't want to just listen to little boxed up jams. I mean, it was different. And you know what? It was fun. But it was all over the place. So why did I make a rap record? Because the 90s? Okay. First, because I thought I could. Because I loved rap music for that period of time and it seemed like a cool thing to do. I mean, I heard Public Enemy and thought, this might be the best punk band on earth. Ice Cube and thought, well, this is scarier than kids with safety pins in their lips. Well, I'm 
sweep a nigga like me up under the rug. Kicking shit, call street knowledge. Why more niggas in the pen than in college? And cause of that line, I might be your cellmate. I'm from the nigga you love to hate. I loved the Beastie Boys, in particular the Paul's Boutique album. Maybe not technically a 90s record, but it feels like it was, doesn't it? I didn't just love rap music, though. I loved all sorts of stuff. In particular, anything with some soul. Maybe because I was looking for a little soul of my own. Sorry. I'm sorry that I did that just now. At one point, I owned almost every Sly and the Family Stone album in existence. There was a lot of Parliament and Funkadelic going around. I could sing runs from the first two Tower of Power albums at will. And I collected every funky 70s movie soundtrack I could get my hands on. I was also a pretty serious Fishbone fan for a while. They seamlessly blended all these different styles together because they knew what they were doing. They made it look easy. But when, you know, my 20-something idiot brain tried to, to do the same thing with none of the skill, 
you get the Native Son record. That's pretty much it. There's a lot to regret about it. I could spend hours trying to absolve myself of, of it and you know bore you to death with my intentions. I think what really messes with me is that I felt like I betrayed some trust. And to add insult to injury, I named it Native Son, which is like if you read the book, you kind of can't pick a worse name for a white dude who doesn't know what he's doing and is basically borderline exploiting rap music. And that's why I I don't like talking about the record, okay? The good news is, is that some of those friends I'd alienated by by making uh, that record, they came back around. <laughs> Already friends to begin with, you know. They had tried to warn me, crucified guys, of course, but but also, ironically, people within the rap music world. And some people came back around. My guest tonight is one of those people. We've been friends since the minute we met. I met him at Cornerstone Festival one summer, and we were just friends, just like that. And of course, being a hip-hop artist, there's a little more irony sprinkled over this whole thing. But yes, my guest tonight is Renee Vasquez, also known as Peace586, producer, mailman, former frontman of Freedom of Soul, but also a husband and a friend. Renee joins me for a two-parter starting this week. And let me tell you, this conversation, there are some things I really want you to hear. It goes deeper than music, deeper than hip-hop or any of that sort of thing, and goes on to things that are eternal. So please sit back and enjoy my talk with a friend of over 20 years, Renee Vasquez. To my memory, mm-hmm. you did not exist. And then I showed up at Cornerstone one year and there you were. And then we were friends forever. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it worked. Were you generated in a lab or something? I mean, how, where did you come from? Yeah, I was uh, created uh, by, well, Gene Eugene and uh, Chris Cooper. <laughs> Chris Cooper both, they, uh, they uh, I guess, uh, created me in, at the Green Room in Huntington. Nice. Nice. <laughs> you and many others. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, man, where'd you come from? How did you get to know those guys? How did you, how did you become part of that scene? Um, basically, uh, I moved out to California from back East. Were you in New York? I was born in New York and then I lived in Miami for a couple of years. And then I moved to Fullerton, California in 1984. Okay. And I met Soup and Guzman and the twins, all about the same time in, I want to say 1989. Okay. And, um, and of course, Guzman is the one that, that met Joe Taylor and Gene Eugene and started making records with them and then hooked up Soup with Gene and it all snowballed from there. Then I, okay. I started making records and twins and then LPG, Tunnel Rats, Idol King, all of that. Right. So there we are at Cornerstone. Yeah. I mean, how did you, did you hear about that through Gene? Uh, Cornerstone? Yeah. Yeah. I guess um, the year I went, I guess Soup played the year before. Okay. And um, and he was raving on, on how dope it was. And so we worked out like this, like little tour, like a 30 day tour. And uh, 
went out the following year. Okay. And uh, I heard about this band called The Crucified and how they were the shit. <laughs> and I really wasn't up to it. I was like, I, don't, I have no idea what kind of music. I had no clue what it was at all. Yeah. And then we met and it was like, we basically <laughs> knew each other. Like, hey, where you been? I had never met you, but it was like, where, where have you yeah. been? That's exactly how I felt. Like, like where, what took this dude so long to get here? Yeah. And uh, I guess we were glued from there on out. And uh, we went on to create all kinds of great music together. <laughs> <laughs> now, we'll get, we'll get into that in a minute. I talk about this with a lot of people because uh, most, of the, most of the folks I've had on the show were around in that kind of 90s era, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I literally just... I just had this conversation, but I always like to hear what somebody else's perspective of, of the cornerstone vibe was, because as I remember, like that first day us hanging out, I mean, it was packed. There were people everywhere. There was kids. I feel like we might've met at the skate ramp or something like that. And there were people just yeah, it was weird. Yeah. going nuts everywhere. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was like during the day and we were at one of the tents going to a skate ramp or coming from either or and i'm serious it was like music wasn't even involved and it was just like hey what's up dude like and oh yeah you're that oh okay cool and um but my take of it was like yeah i was blown away because you know back then there was no internet no no way of finding out like am i at the right place (laughs) um is this what it's, I have no idea what it's supposed to look like. You can't go online and, oh, okay, if I turn left here, it's by that Pizza Hut. Right, right. Or close to that Pizza Hut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the Pizza uh-huh. Hut. Right? And there's like the, uh, what the heck was that place? Hardee's or something? Something like that. There's like a Hardee's. That if, if you go to the hotel, there was a Godfather's Pizza by the hotel, mm. which was disgusting. Mm. And then there was that little gas station by the hotel that everybody used to go to. But then you drive down and through that weird little town like Macomb and you had to make a right and there you'd start seeing the evidence, you know? Yeah. But my point is like, you had no clue because (laughs) there was no internet. Right. 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 You just got there and you're like, Oh, okay. I think this is it. This has to be like, where, what else could be in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) but a bunch of teenage Christian crazy skaters, hip hoppers. It was unmistakable once you got there, but whether or not you got there might've been a challenge. (laughs) Yeah, that's the truth. Yep. Yep. Like, where are they taking us? No, these directions can't be right. There's nothing here. I remember reading a roadmap with soup and because he couldn't read a map to save his life. (laughs) And me being the mailman that I am right now, I do know direction. Well, look at you. Look at you. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, reading this roadmap, I was like, yeah, we should be here at this time. This is where it should be. And, you know, he, he was there before, but still he don't, he don't be knowing shit. He don't know. Oh, where is it at? (laughs) I'm like, it's gotta be there, man. So yeah, we found it. Just to give people an idea of what is about to be covered here, this is this is a solid twenty five years, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, solid twenty five years, and we're gonna get you from a packed Cornerstone Festival with literal frenzies of human beings chasing stickers, okay? Yeah, yeah. to mailman. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. That's so right. We got to get there. Yeah. It's going to take us a minute. Yeah, it'll be a while, but we can run through it. When I met you, was Freedom of Soul fully happening at that point? Yeah, yeah. Freedom of Soul, that was uh, our first uh, record called uh, Caught in Atlanta Time. Okay. We had just put it out, and uh, that was like our first run at it. Like, let's just go on the road and do shows and... That's what we were doing. Had you been making records for a long time up until that point? Well, not not complete albums, but I did a lot of features, a lot of collabs on like Soup Stuff and JC and the Boys and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. but no, I was uh, pretty much next in line to do a record after Soup's Save Man in a Jungle record. Okay. Next in and line meaning? At Broken BAI Records. Gotcha. Gotcha. It was supposed to be a solo record, but... I didn't want to be a solo artist. I wanted to be a part of a group. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I wasn't strong enough to be a solo artist. So um, I linked up with uh, DJ Cartoon and we created Freedom of Soul. Yeah. And uh, I felt more comfortable with doing that first out the, out the gate. I know you're going to dig this. The Freedom of Soul would like to express their definition of love. This is a track where I like to express all the love that I have progressed. Over the years I have compressed a deep feeling which I must express. To you who are listening to this tune, from the poor to the big tycoon, or colors or creeds and race, if you like rock, jazz, or bass, no matter who you are or I am, if your name's Abraham or Adam, no matter what kind of clothes you wear, the point I'm trying to make clear is, let's start doing something positive, hug your brother, no matter how hot it is. Cause it's gonna get rough when push comes to shove I tell ya boy This is love Yeah, yeah. This is love This is love This is love What record did you hear that made you want to do records? Man, I, I, I never wanted to do this this shit. <laughs> I never thought in my life I would make records. I just love music. Okay. And uh, what happened was uh, I met Guzman and uh, I went to his house and I had no idea on the process of making records, but he had like a four track at his house and he had uh, a couple of reels of, um, of music, you know, and I was checking it out. It was nice, you know, I thought it was cool. Uh, the whole process of making records, making music, you know, and I was like, dang, this is how you do it. This is how it's done. <laughs> and um, so he was like, you you know how to rap? And I was like, yeah, I think I can, I, I can rap. I think I can. Uh, I was more so a DJ than anything. And um, and so I just wrote some raps, man. Like, like I thought, okay, yeah, I could do it. All right. And I recorded like a little 16 bar rap over a beat that he had and we started rapping at churches together, and um, and then it like it, it encouraged me to to keep writing because of, the response was real good. So um, yeah. yeah, man. And then Soup came with uh, more beats and better drum machine and a sampler and and forget it. It was like nah, 
this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. What what groups did you grow up with, though? I mean, what what records? Like rap, you... like rap wise, just music. or just all, music, yeah. music. Oh man, when I was a kid, man, um, I loved like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, of course, and um, like the group Slave, uh, Shalimar. Um, I have three older siblings and they're like 11, 10 and seven years older than me. Okay. So um, they grew up in the 70s and I listened to a lot of their records as a kid. And uh, those are all the records that I listened to growing up. My first actual record that I bought with my own money was Slaves Just a Touch of Love. I was nine years old when I bought that record and I wore it out. Mm -hmm. And, And then, you know, Hip-hop started coming in, like rap music and, of course, Sugar Hill Gang. But I was more so into, like, Spoonie G, The Treacherous Three, you know, Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. That was more my speed. I felt like Sugar Hill Gang was cool. They were good. It was more radio. I wanted that real underground Mm -hmm. rap stuff, even back then when I was, like, 10, 11 years old. Okay. So you come out here to to California. You, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm just trying to figure out how all you guys met each other because not only did you guys meet each other. I mean, that's where Bob Moon was at. That's where yeah, it's crazy. Even the, X, like the XL. Martin Brothers, yeah, XL was out there. Mm-hmm. All all of you guys, the Martin Brothers, I think were in Riverside too. You know, they were all. You guys all kind of grew up at the same time, or at least roughly. Yeah, I, I'll tell I'll tell you how it all happened. Um, basically, Guzman was like the the Guzman, the Guzman, yeah, meaning Dave Guzman, Dave Guzman, JC and the boys, Dave Guzman, okay, crazy, crazy Puerto Rico. All right, basically, he lived in Rialto, Super C lived in Rialto. Then I met Dave through my brother at a Victory Outreach Church in Orange County, mm-hmm. and then I met Soup through Dave. And then one day, me and Dave went to uh K Day up in LA, the radio station, uh, 1580 K Day, and the twins were up there trying to get their music on the radio. Okay. And so we, they were from New York and we were from New York. So we just exchanged info. They lived in Moreno Valley. They started coming, hanging out with us. And all of a sudden they're part of the crew. Hmm. And then uh, we're recording records now with Gene Eugene at the green room. And Gene always had assistant engineers, people that would work underneath him. Right. Bob Moon was an engineer. Okay. Bob lived in Riverside. I lived in Corona then. And... Guzman and everybody, you know, it's just basically from the IE. I met XL through Bob Moon. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how it all tied together. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, and it, but it, it's weird though how you say it though, Mark, because it, it was, it all, it felt like we had known each other before. Right. <laughs> like it wasn't like, oh, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Let's get to know each other. It was like, hey, what's up, man? Like, like, let's, let's go. I know. Like, j- let's get on board and let's just go. When you and I, I don't know, man. I mean, I've had a couple friends in my life who connected in that same way, mm-hmm. but I just, I don't know. I, I felt like I already knew you and I don't know. It just sort of happened. <laughs> yeah. And then we would play those shows. I remember you guys coming, you know, anytime the whole Riverside crew, cause it wasn't just you guys. It was also, uh, a rise skates. Oh yeah. Andre, Andre and all of those knuckleheads. Mm-hmm. I met Kelly Rosecrans. Uh, at at a show through Andre and the Arise Skates group. I never went to Riverside. I never spent any time in the I. Yeah, I know. Somehow it just sort of always worked out that way. I don't know. I don't know. Was, yep. And it was, you know, I think we all had music on that Arise Skates video, didn't we? I can't remember. Oh. I honestly can't Dude. remember. I just know that you lived in Fresno mm-hmm. 
and we lived in Southern California, right? And we saw each other a lot, but when you moved to Orange County, we never saw each other again. I know, cause I was, I was in a different place then. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Oh yeah. say there was a solid there was a solid two or three years where crucified would come down i mean we played in in southern california once you know once a month once every two months it was very rarely that it was more than two months that we didn't have a show mm. and i think you were at a lot i mean you were at those infamous club post nuclear shows where it was just mm completely out of control sweaty and yeah those kids were insane yeah you you guys are so dope i mean i had to be there so it was so weird too that was when i saw xl with the the red black and green target on his afro <laughs> uh, he was at one of those shows <laughs> yeah it's crazy you know it's interesting also because gene eugene's net was cast so wide he he had relationships with you guys. Yeah. He had relationships with some of the bands who later on kind of became more synonymous with Stavesacre and that part of my life. Hmm. He was always a major presence during those days. I mean, even dating back to, to Scattered Few. You know, Scattered Few was playing all those shows with Crucified. And as I remember, I think, what's her name? Ricky Michelle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she sang on that Scattered Few record, Sin Disease. Probably. I'm pretty sure that's her voice on there. Probably. Talk a little bit about about Gene and your relationship with him. I mean, I know it's it's a tough thing and obviously he's passed on and that was a, a heavy blow for everybody to take. Yeah. Well, I mean, first meeting Gene, I, I thought he was just like a bum. Like that <laughs> was just, I just thought like, who is this white dude? Like, really? He don't know nothing. How could he know anything about rap? Right. You know, and hip hop, right. you know, he, I don't know shit. But then seeing him and Chris together at, when Chris was at his apartment, at Gene's apartment, and seeing how Gene was helping him figure out how to use the MPC-60, the sampler. Oh, yes. I remember those things. Yeah, man. So Gene was the one that would help him figure out how to work it, like, because he knew a lot of technical um, language, you know, so like we didn't, had no idea what MIDI was or uh, time sequencing <laughs> or like we had no idea what, but you know, this was that much more advanced where we kind of needed an interpreter. Yeah. And Gene knew he was a brainiac, like he was a genius. And so he figured shit out like instantly, like yeah. as soon as like you just turn something on, okay, I got this. You know, I remember Gene having a, uh, an Apple computer at the green room before anybody thought about having computers in their studio. Yeah. And I was used to trip on him. Like, why, why does he have this here? But (laughs) for some reason, I mean, he always knew, I mean, he figures shit out all the time. And, and I would just listen to him after figuring out, wait, this cat, not only is he cool, but he knows his stuff. I would just try to go in and just listen, listen to just key phrases or words or things that he would say. Because he really wouldn't just like 
Because if you ask him, he'll say, oh, I don't know. I don't know, Renee. I don't. I just figure it out. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but if you would just sit back and listen to him talk, you know, without him, without you asking, mm-hmm. you would hear knowledge come out of his mouth. You would you would see him work and you would say, oh, shit, that's what he's doing. OK, I get it. Yeah. And just by learning, by watching and, and listening more than just asking. And he was he was incredible for me in my life. And, uh, you know, I owe him a ton. Did you ever see him perform live with Adam again? Oh, yeah. Many times. Oh, my gosh. Many times. I saw them at Cornerstone once. During that time, like in the 80s and the early 90s, Adam again was kind of on the outer realm of that. You know, most people knew about Altar Boys or Undercover or The Choir or even Daniel Amos, you know. But but Adam Mm -hmm. again was just sort of like this peripheral band that just sort of rotated around everybody. Mm-hmm. And then I'm at Cornerstone one year and I see this guy on stage like, who is this dude? Yeah. You know, he he's, I don't know. He's just, he's doesn't, he's not a rock star. Okay. No. You know, but then he gets on stage and he just, those shows were so great, man. Dude, they rocked. Oh my gosh. And he would just keep playing. Very good. Mm-hmm. And everything was composed. There was like this kind of plan, like he had a plan for the show, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, w- I had not seen that yet. I had not encountered that yet. This kind of mm-hmm. an over, I don't know. He had this overarching view, like a long view of the show. I always thought that was so cool. So when he, he's putting everybody together, I'm trying to think, were you around when, when I came and did the track with, um, XL? For the DVD album? Was I at the studio, you mean? The Death Before Dishonor. Yeah, at, at Green Room. I wasn't at the studio then, but I remember him recording that. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, you just don't know how important this place is going to be to you. Yeah. I never really felt like I was in in there with them dudes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I look back now and I think, oh my gosh, man. I spent a lot of time at that room yeah. in that weird little lounge behind the control room mm-hmm. and watching everybody. Cause I remember Gene would let people come in and just like learn stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many albums were we talking about with freedom of soul? Freedom of soul did two albums. And then I did one with, um, Innocent, which was Joey's solo label after they split. Everything with Gene? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And then I produced um, uh, LPG's first record with Gene, and then I produced the Tonal Rats' first record with Gene. Basically, I had about five or six records all all together with Gene. Mm -hmm. It's so weird, man, because I don't think, like, after that that early 90s thing, a lot of the hip-hop groups in the Christian scene just vanished, man. Yeah, well... It, It was taken over by all these rock bands at Green Room, and I swear, half of them didn't even... There's just no point of reference, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's that's been a, a major thing of mine for a long time. It's just this this history issue within the Christian community and, and Christian musical community and having some perspective on, dude, how come the conversation wasn't more often, hey, you, Gene Eugene's doing your record. That guy did Freedom of Soul. Like, you know, like it just I think I think back then. I didn't I don't think we even thought about it that way. I think we just wanted to go in and do what we love, which was m- make music. Yeah. And for me, I didn't care who was there. I would always ask a, hey, you know, do you mind if I come hang out? Yeah. Like on a open night when Adam again was recording Dig. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just wanted to be there. Yeah. And he was like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So you were there for that for Dig? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You son of a... I was there, man. 
I was there, man. I watched all that shit wow, happen, man. man. I was like, oh my gosh. <sighs> These guys are crazy. Yeah, man. You know what they had? They had John in the sound booth and um, playing in the drums in the, in the vocal booth. And then they had, um, what was his name? Paul, the bass player, Gene, and my man, the uh, guitar player. They were all inside right behind the uh, console, mm-hmm. just rocking out, dude. It was just crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I think that band was never given enough love. Man, that album, that album is great. Oh, yeah. I still listen to that record. That record is great. Was uh, was Ricky s- still in the band at the time? Yeah, yeah, she was in the band. Yep, she was there too. Yeah, man, that was special. <laughs> I'm trying to. Th- which album was it that had um, like Occam's Razor, Homeboys, 1990? Oh yeah. <sighs> That thing changed my life. <laughs> that album changed my life. Yeah, Gene was, he was way ahead of everybody else. Like, he was definitely pulling the wagon. Yeah. And But the thing is, is that he 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 was so cool and he knew it, <laughs> but he didn't he didn't make you feel like, hey, I'm I'm pulling this. Yeah, yeah. You know, this shit right here. You know, I, I'm the one that's, I know what I'm doing. I'm pulling this like musically, sure. Not from, not not business wise because he's pretty horrible at <laughs> business. Yeah. But yeah. musically, he knew he was ahead of everybody and pulling everybody and just come with me, like just let's do this. And mm-hmm. man, it was so cool to watch. I mean, there was another band that that came in through there, uh, an R and B gospel group that Gene recorded there called Anointed. Anointed? Yes. And they were very, they blew up. Like, and mm-hmm. matter of fact, Mario Winans. Oh yeah, the Winans. Produced that record. And I was there for that. I just wanted to watch that. And like all the time, like just bands would just come in the studio and I would just ask, wow. can I just hang out? Just to, just to learn, to soak it all in because I love music that much and I love the recording process. Yeah. And that's, that's why I really stopped making music per se myself. I just wanted to become in, a producer, you know, beat maker. That's what led me to that. Gene Eugene kind of gives you your entrance into the music and 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 into the production side of things. I mean, let's maybe kind of get into some of those early uh, the early years with with uh, Freedom of Soul and you and Cartoon and what the shows were like. I mean, I don't think people really remember what that that time period was very strange, man. I mean, for the most part, Mark. I mean. I just wanted to make music and I never even thought about doing shows. Like I really, I really didn't want to do shows. I just wanted to make music, Mm -hmm. but I knew I had to go out and do shows to make money and to sell merch and to gain more fans. And it's a business, you know? So, but then I started getting burnt out on the business of, well, let me just say the Christian business of making, you know, records. Okay. So, you know, I, I just felt like, 
I didn't even care about going to a show and, and I didn't put much effort into what we sounded like or I didn't I didn't care. So if anybody would have seen me live and say, oh, man, they suck. Yeah. You know what? I, we did <laughs> suck because I didn't give a yeah. flying yeah. fuck. I really didn't. Back then, I mean, I just, I, you know, I was just like, just, just show me where to go. I'm gonna do these songs. Right. Give me my check, and I'm out. Gotcha. And that was my attitude. But what I didn't want to do was go back to the studio and make more music. I think I eventually got there, where all I wanted to do was just go, go back and record and be in the safe confines of a room I understood. And that's why I had more joy or more fun when I listened back at a song called "Respect." on SFC's Illumination record that I, the beat that I made for that. Mm. And I listened to other people rap over it and I'm like, man, it sounds so good to me, you know? Yeah. Or when I did the Earthworm record by LPG and how they rapped over it and I'm, I'm just love that stuff or the Tunnel Rat stuff. And, you know, it's just when they rap over what I do and I produce it, you know, it, I love that more than my own stuff. Last time we talked, I remember talking about that just more interested in the production side of things and creating the beats or whatever. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, even today I was, I was praying, you know, cause even though I use bad language, I still pray, man. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> I don't care. Bad language is not, you know what I think of when I think of bad language, dude, I think, of I hate you. Yeah. You know what? You're right. I, I agree with you hundred percent. I hope all the bad things yep. happen to you. Yeah. 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 Or calling somebody, a jerk or you're ugly or stupid or yeah, those are, that's bad. That's, that's real bad. I mean, dude, what's the motivation behind it? That's what I want to know. Yeah, that's right. If it's funny to say that's bullshit, then it's funny to say that's bullshit. That's not an, that doesn't yeah. bother me in any way. And it doesn't bother right. anybody else. Right. Just Americans. We got our own thing. skipped ahead because we started talking about making beats and things like that but i want to i before we go there you know you right. you mentioned yeah just now i i still pray and and uh you you mentioned earlier about being burned out on the christian music yeah, industry yeah. where how did you come to your faith i mean were, were you raised in the church no did you become a christian later on as, um, you know on your own or yeah yeah that's where the 586 stands for uh, from uh, Peace 586, um, it's uh, May of 86 is when I became yeah. Christian, when I gave my life to the Lord and decided that um, he is okay. my savior. That was, I think I was like 17 years old. I was going to church. I, I hadn't gone to church ever. Well, my mom used to drag me to church when I was a little boy, but mm -hmm. back in the Bronx, but you know, I didn't, I didn't want to have nothing to do with it, but she was going to church out here in Fullerton. And uh, she told me that uh, she would really like me to 
go, I think on a Mother's Day or something like that. So I went and I really liked it. I, I thought it was really cool. And so I started to go more and more. And of course, you know, it's a little small church in Fullerton that, that did some, you know, functions like that camping and fishing trips mm-hmm. and stuff like that, softball team. And I thought it was cool. So I started going more and more and I started learning a lot. And um, I decided that, yeah, this is the right thing. And um, then from there, it was weird because that, that's when I met Dave Guzman uh, like a year after that. And it was almost like doors were opening yeah. immediately for me. Okay. I just, I'm always curious where the, where the. No, I didn't have, I don't have that testimony where I went to jail <laughs> or I was selling drugs or, you know, I was in a gang or, you know, that's not me. I never did none of that shit. Uh, well, I'll tell you, some people who had that testimony didn't do any of that shit either. So. <laughs> you know, you're right. Save it. You're right. Uh, that time, that that late 80s, early 90s time, you got a lot of people in their late teens and in their early 20s pursuing this thing that's really kind of unknown to us. The Christian rock, Christian music, Christian entertainers, all that kind of stuff. It's still fairly new. Yeah. There wasn't like a lot of examples to fall back on. There was Gene. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. There's Joey right. Taylor. There's like guys that I, I mean, Gene. I got to know after I had heard about him, but I got to know his music after I had met him. Whereas Joey mm-hmm. or or maybe say Mike Stan, the Ultra Boys guy, those dudes were always just this kind of like whoa. Yeah, they're like these pillars of mm-hmm. faith kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still they were not relatable f- for myself. For when mm-hmm. all when all of our bands started doing all of this stuff, that was also an important time in music because. Early 90s, what's happening? 89, Jane's Addiction comes out and takes over. Like They don't take over the world in the way that Nirvana does very shortly after, but they take over. And then Perry Mm -hmm. Farrell starts doing the Lollapalooza thing, which is what? All different styles of music that all these people like, bringing Mm -hmm. them all together under the same roof, right? Mm -hmm. We were all becoming friends. Yeah, there's all these different styles of music being represented at that time. But the truth is, is that was just the time. That was the early 90s. It was just this kind of Mm. mishmash of everything. Everybody was listening to all these different kinds of music. It could be completely different styles of bands at every show. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I don't know. Did we ever play with Freedom of Soul? I don't know if we ever did. No, no, we weren't being a... We weren't either. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't either, but yeah, right. we're going to, we're going to discuss this. This will be settled tonight. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We weren't big enough for the crucified. You, you guys are huge. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> Let me ask <clears throat> you this. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask you how many records you sold. Do you know? I have no effing idea. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I would say all together or like just freedom of soul, peace. Or at least Freedom of Soul. I mean, what do you think was your most successful record? Well, Freedom of Soul, the first record was caught in Atlanta time and that got picked up by Epic. Okay. And um we shot a video for it, like an actual film video, like not, you know, digital. Yeah, yeah. Like major production. It was got picked up and it was on Rap City on BT, you know. So we were large. All right. So how many records do you think that thing sold? I would say in the 40, 50,000 range, probably. How do you think, how many think we sold? Um, <laughs> all together? Uh, no, just any record. Go ballpark it for me. I would say about 80. Nope. No way. No way. If we sold 80,000 records at that time. Mm-hmm. But we were all getting robbed at that time too. So we were definitely getting robbed. 
That's the part of the Christian business thing, you know. 80,000 records back then, you know, you could sell like a thousand now and be like, yeah. That's, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's about 80 grand back then. Yeah, yeah. 80,000 then was not as big as it would be now. Yeah, 80,000 now and you're owning your own <laughs> your music, man. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're good. I just read the other day that uh, some R&B chick that um, debuted a record and it was like, Went number one in R&B and I was just reading and it was like she sold 16,000 records her first week. I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. 16,000 and they're going crazy. Yeah, people want to know what happened to the economy. No one ever talks about the fact that a major, major portion of a major industry just vanished overnight, which is all the jobs Mm -hmm. and all the work that were associated with the, the music business, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Sad. That's why 21 years ago, when I got the call from the United States Postal Service, <laughs> I said, hell yes, sign me up. Yeah, there you go. And guess what, Mark? What? In 10 years, I can officially retire with a pension. That is weird to me. That's <laughs> super weird to me. Seen, yeah. I seen it coming, man. I seen it like after Freedom of Soul and my first record. I knew, hey, you know what? This isn't going to pan yeah. for my life. However, I can still make it, sure. make music and love to make music and just do it the way I want to do it. Of course. So in the middle of there, because please don't think you're going to get out of this conversation without. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. Oh, yeah. We're not, we're not going to conclude there with a wonderful story of how you left the music industry and became a postman. <laughs> Everybody thinks a lot. Yeah. Good night. A few things have happened over the years. Yeah, they, a lot of things have. And some of them you are aware of painfully and some of them you are not aware of. Mm. Okay. Where are you going? And for instance... In 1993, mm-hmm. I mentioned that on a show a few weeks ago, I, I was in my Nebuchadnezzar period of my life. I lost, I lost my mind. Oh, I think I know where you're going. Now, before we get into that, though, I will say this. Shortly before that, about a year or two, 21 years old, very angry young man, and also completely and utterly lost in terms of who am I? I don't know who I am. Oh, you're from Fresno. And I'm from Fresno, which is not what 
people think of when they think, <laughs> here's something I will model my life after or whatever. <laughs> when you grow up in Fresno, I don't care what anybody says, nobody grows up in Fresno thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to be that guy from Fresno. <laughs> that's not necessarily a plan that people set out. That's not, that's not true, Mark. Most, most people grow up in Fresno, they go one way or the other, Southern California or Northern California. They get out of there. That's true. Because Fresno was, was a dead-end spot for a long time. And then eventually became extremely scary. That's not where I was going with this. Where I was going with this was I personally was just without any identity. And what does that give you? An identity crisis. Oh, yes. It's about to get uncomfortable up in here. (laughs) Rest assured, we go way past all that. Please do not miss next week's show. We're going to talk about more than making music. You can be sure of that. To the business. Tonight we heard all kinds of stuff. Dennis Hopper on the 90s from uh, the movie Flashback. I think the quote's probably better than the movie. Sorry. Perry Farrell from the old Jane's Addiction short film Soul Kiss. From the music department, we heard Fight the Power from Public Enemy. Ice Cube's the N star, 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 star you love to hate. Uh, Car Thief by the Beastie Boys. Rest in peace, MCA. And also Frisky from the one and only Sly and the Family Stone. My gosh, the Small Talk album is amazing. And Super Stupid from Funkadelic. Listen to Funkadelic's Maggot Brain. Listen to that first song on there. And then realize that these are on the same album. And Everyday Sunshine from the criminally underrated Fishbone. And the album, Reality of My Surroundings. Man, that record. I'll tell you, all I talk about the 90s. Definitely need to get that conversation going. More on that in a minute, because you need to know that. During the show, also, you heard both This Is Love and Sooner or Later from Freedom Soul. And the instrumentals from Renee's production files uh, were Willie Vasquez, His Shoes, and Heavens. Also, three new Patreonic lovers. I'm talking to you, Graham Buck, Arthur Ramsey, and Kara McQuaid. Thank you all so very much. Uh, as to that 90s thing, you can write me at the Twilight Zone at INeverWas.com or you can tweet me at the Never Was Podcast. What is your definitive 90s thing? What is the quintessential 90s moment for you? Music, movies, whatever. Let's talk about it. Do me a favor before you do. Look at what albums were released in 1990 and 1991 and have your your brain explode. Okay, lastly but not leastly, this show was produced by Billy Power of Urban Achiever Podcast and the Urban Achiever Show. As always, any other music you heard on this show was from my band White Lighter's debut album on Northern Records. Please be here next week when Renee and I discuss the rest of the music biz, but also when things take a substantially different and far more eternal direction. I'm serious. Married folks, folks in love, you need to hear this. Until then, be good. Rainbow out.